It's time. Yay. I'll shut myself off before Gail shuts me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now's the time to shut off your audio and your video so that hopefully we make it through this session with without my internet dropping. Um, let me get this screen share going. All righty, you should be able to see the um, blank screen. So if you don't, there's a problem and say something. So uh, in chapter 20, Abraham moves down to the Negev, to the land of the Philistines. And the actual Philistines didn't get to here, get, didn't get here. They came from Crete and they didn't actually arrive for a few hundred more years. But in the Hebrew Bible, the stories always refer to this area and the people who live in this area as the Philistines. And it's one of the ways we're able to date um, approximately when these, these, um, this part of the Hebrew Bible was written down. As we know that whoever wrote this down lived after the Philistines arrived. So um, anyway, Abraham lives right on their southern border. And if you think back to the stories, you know Abraham is an undoubtedly powerful force. He's well known throughout Canaan. This is a small little bit of land. You can drive from one end to the other. You can drive across it in no time at all. So this, everybody knows everybody here. And he's known for his wealth, for his fighting men, for the massive size of his household. And he's probably perceived as a threat by Abimelech, who is king of this area. So what does Abraham do? Well, I'll give you a hint. He's afraid they will kill him to get to Sarah. Hint, hint. Yep, they tell Abimelech they are brother and sister. And the story happens basically the same way it did before. You know, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem and all kinds of bad things begin happening health-wise to his family, to his wives, can't have any babies. And Abimelech goes to the Lord and the Lord says, don't touch her. She's the, she's the wife of a great prophet. And so Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham and scolds him saying, why did you tell me you were brother and sister when you're actually husband and wife? And Abraham explains that they really are brother and sister, that they have the same father and just different mothers. And this verse here is how we know that. So Abimelech pays Abraham off and gives Sarah back to him. So this story raises a lot of questions for me. First off, it was already a stretch the first time we saw this story to believe that Sarah was so beautiful at 65 that this would happen to her. But, you know, I know what Cher looks like at, looked like at 65, and I was, I'm willing to give Sarah the benefit of the doubt. But now she's over 90 years old. Uh, no, I'm not going for this whole raving beauty thing. And besides that, last week in chapter 18, verse 12, Sarah called her own self shriveled and worn out. So there has to be another explanation for why this story is here. For one thing, it's almost exactly the same as the previous one, and that's our first clue. Perhaps this story is meant to be a parallel or a repeat of the first one. Perhaps 
it is being used as a literary device to highlight important information. So I know lots of us were raised to, to take everything in the Bible literally and chronologically. I was, I was raised like that. But I want to remind you that we are dealing with ancient writing forms and we need to take those customs into account. Ancient writers don't play by our modern rules. I know many of you have read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've seen the same stories repeated in each of them. But have you ever noticed the chronology of the stories? They're different in the different Gospels. Matthew and Luke usually track pretty closely together, but Mark's version is in a completely different order. Um, and those of you who have studied Mark with me know why that is. For example, in Mark, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in chapter one, very early in his ministry, like almost the first thing. In Matthew, this doesn't happen until much later in his ministry. I mean, in Matthew, it's, it doesn't happen until chapter eight. And in Mark, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand first before he calms the storm. But in Matthew, the calming of the storm is first and the healing of the man with the withered hand happens much later. So this is just like one example. The writers, these ancient writers do not necessarily place a high value on strict chronology. That may not be the point of their story. Different authors have very different reasons for arranging those events in the order they do. And you need to know that this is how ancient writers wrote stories. They took liberties with chronology if it suited their purpose. So when you come to a passage that seems ridiculously out of place chronologically, even if the writer makes it sound chronological, don't be alarmed and don't do backflips trying to make it fit. You'll end up missing the writer's actual point. When you see something like this, it should alert you that the writer is using the story as a literary device to highlight something important. In this case, we immediately recognize the wife-sister story as a repeat of the earlier one in chapter 12. You can't hardly miss it. It kind of hits you in the face with a baseball bat. So when this happens, look carefully at the two stories and identify similarities and differences. So that's a tool for your backpack right there. Right off the bat, we see that the stories are placed right where Abraham moves to a new location. It means he's dealing with different politics and different people. In the first story, he moves to Egypt, which is the major political power of this entire region, all the way from Africa, where we typically think of Egypt. At this time, Egypt stripped stretched all the way from there, from Africa, all the way up nearly to Haran. Egypt right now controls the, this entire north-south part of the trade route. But in the second story, Abraham moves to the border of a small localized tribe, those Philistines. And, and, uh, Philistines. I was raised to call them Philistines. It's Philistines is how you say it. This gives us a clue that the focus of the story is narrowing. The big sweeping promises to Abraham were introduced by the big sweeping political area, Egypt. With the second version, we, the, the 
second version of the story has focused down locally to a local political structure. So we can expect the scope of the following narrative to shift to something more local. This third point where Sarah is taken as a wife in, in somebody's harem, that's a difference here because in the Egypt story, Sarah is, is taken in as a wife, implying that you know, she had relations with Pharaoh. But in the second story, she's never touched. They make it very clear. She's never touched. And one reason, obviously, is so that Isaac's paternity is never in question. In fact, the, that might be a clear argument against the second story even being in here at all. Why in the world would the writer even risk something that might cause a question around Isaac's paternity? Why put this story in at all? It must have a very important purpose, but what in the world could it possibly be? We'll have to approach the story from another angle to unlock the reason. So table that thought for just a moment and let's finish our comparison here. The two stories end in similar manners. God alerts the rulers that Sarah is Abraham's wife and the rulers return her to Abraham along with great riches. In both cases, we see that these rulers and therefore these nations have no excuse for ignoring God. They have the means to hear God. And that's important to remember later in the Hebrew Bible. The rulers of Egypt and of the Philistines are perfectly capable of hearing the Lord. So back to why the second wife-sister story is even in here. What's so important about it? Well, there's a common literary device ancient writers use that can cause there to be oddly placed repeats in a narrative. This literary device is called a chiasm, and it was used all the time by ancient writers to help the reader understand the main point of the story. When modern writers want to highlight the point of a story, we are taught to place the statement at the beginning of our narrative in a topic sentence, right? Well, ancient writers would do that as well, but sometimes when it suited their purpose and when it was worth all the extra effort they had to go to to do this, they would put the most important part of a narrative smack dab in the middle. And here's how that works. Chi is the name of the letter X in Greek. Now, obviously, our writers in Genesis did not know Greek and would not have called this literary device by that name. Chiasm is just the name we've given their technique because you'll see why, because of how it's structured. The technique is easiest to understand. If you think of just one side of the X or the chi, the top and the bottom are the twin stories. And, that, and what's in the middle in between them is the most important part of that section of the narrative. It's the part the author is trying to highlight for you. So let's look at how it works in this story. And don't worry about frantically copying this stuff down. I'm going to put it in the study guide for you after class, along with scripture references and, and everything. I just want you to relax and follow along here. So we start by putting the two wife-sister stories at the top, the first one, 
and at the bottom, the second one. Those are the parentheses around the narrative that we're gonna examine. The more important the point, the more work the author will put in to adding layers of paired elements that will point us to the most important part of the narrative. So let's look for more pairs. What happens right after the Egypt story? Well, Abram splits up from Lot and Lot chooses the best land. And remember how the Abram was disappointed, you know, and, uh, and the Lord had to uh, uh, comfort him about it and say, you're going to get the land back, I promise. And then there's this weird little verse in 1313 saying the people of Sodom are very wicked. And then the Lord consoles Abram, promises the land to him. Then Lot is taken into captivity and is rescued by Abram. Remember that story? Then we have the whole chapter where the Lord reiterates the promise to Abram of numerous descendants and all the land. And the Lord solemnizes the promise by passing between the halves of the animals. I know you remember that part. Then God prophesies that Abram's descendants will be taken into captivity for 400 years and will then be rescued. Wait, that sounds familiar. Descendants taken into captivity and rescued. See how that matches up with Lot being taken into captivity and rescued by Abram? In the first kidnapping, the rescue was by Abram. In the second one, the Lord is doing the rescuing. We must be coming out the other side of the chiasm. What we should find are pairs like this, reflections of previous incidents in exactly the reverse order. They should be easily identifiable, but with a twist that highlights what has changed due to whatever important thing happened in the middle of the X. So now we know that the center of the chiasm and the most important part of the whole narrative is God's promise to Abram. And that makes sense, right? The whole narrative points to this central topic. So let's keep going and see if it works all the way out the other side of the chiasm. We should find a reflection of each of the other incidents. But wait, the next thing that happens is the whole Sarai, Hagar, and Ishmael story. Well, that doesn't fit. Let's put that in a holding tank for the moment. We'll come back to it later. After that is the final promise, the part with the appearance of El Shaddai, the name changes, and the circumcision. God reiterates the promise of all the land and names its boundaries. And that works. It matches up perfectly to the previous promise where God promised land to Abram. What's changed is Abraham. He's got God's name in his now and God's mark on his body. This is so cool. So now we would expect the next thing to be about the wickedness of Sodom. And guess what? It is. It's the story of the three visitors and all about how wicked Sodom is. The difference is that this time it's not just talk. This time the Lord himself comes to destroy Sodom. All right, we're down to one more slot. It should have to do with Lot taking the best land away from Abram. And it does. It is a deliberate contrast to Abraham's story where 
Abram let Lot have first pick and Abram seems to lose the land. But now Abraham is given all the land back by the Lord. Lot loses it all and Abraham is given it all. Wow. See the, the relationship there and how it got changed because of what happened in the middle. See how the story is carefully crafted to pinpoint the most important part and then demonstrate what changes as a result of it. It's a hugely powerful literary technique and you can see why ancient writers love to use it. But if you've been following along in your Bible, you'll see there's still one more part of the story. And it's that part about Lot's daughters getting him drunk and sleeping with him. And that doesn't fit the chiasm at all. That needs to go in the same holding tank as the Sarai Hager story. In fact, let's head over to that holding tank now and figure out what's up with these bits that don't fit the chiasm. Here's the first one. Sarai gives Hager to Abram. Hager becomes pregnant and runs away. And the Lord tells her she will bear a son who will become a great nation, the Ishmaelites in this case. And here's the second one. Lot's daughters sleep with him. They become pregnant. And from them come two great nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Wow, those are very similar stories. People taking things into their own hands. And in both cases, the children born become nations in their own right. You should recognize what genre these are. What are these? These are etiologies. These are telling how these three nations came to be. These nations will figure into the Hebrew Bible later on, and the writer needed to explain where they came from, and he had to put them in there somewhere. And so now that we know why they're there, we can safely exclude them from the analysis of the chiasm. They are in there for a different purpose entirely. So how cool is that? By noticing the strange duplication of the wife-sister story and recognizing it as a literary device, we've been able to identify a major chiasm in the story that pinpoints the writer's major point. The point being the solemn promise to Abram of descendants and land. And it also helps us put that second bizarre wife-sister story in perspective. It's not there as a chronological incident at all. It simply marks the end of a major chiasm. And this is knowing how to recognize a chiasm is a big tool um, to put in your backpack. It's important. And in fact, every time I read scripture, I, every time I study it, every time I prepare a Bible class, I see something new. And I have always wondered why in the world the promises to Abram were split over so many chapters. And as I was praying last week about, you know, starting my work on writing this, this class for you, um, I was praying about that second wife-sister story and asking the Lord why that was in there. It was so weird. And, and immediately, before I even finished verbalizing the prayer in my head, I felt the urging of the spirit. That's like, that's what I call the Lord talking to me. This is how the Lord speaks to my heart is before I finish speaking, the thought popped into my head, look to see if it's a chiasm, Gail. 
And I thought, well, I guess it could be a chiasm. It, maybe it is. I didn't, didn't notice. Um, and again, that thought popped in, look to see if it's a chiasm, Gail. And so I just made a little note and I said, okay, I'll, I'll look at that when I get up in the morning and start, start working on this lesson. And, and sure enough, it was a chiasm and it was so cool to, to just finally understand this and to have seen it in time to share it with you also. So anyway, from this point forward, the story will narrow to focus on Abraham's family and what happens specifically to his family. Really, if you, if you take a look, if you go back and look at it, you will see that the Abram story start, starting in chapter 12, you know, just after the Lord, the Lord tells him to leave Haran and keep going. And the first eight verses of chapter 12 are, are a capsule statement, an encapsulized statement of the promises. And it is just a little summary introducing the story, which is going to give all the detail. And immediately the narrative launches into this chiasm. And this chiasm takes the whole entire story of the promises to Abraham. It brackets it completely. So it makes so much more sense now. So anyway, enough about chiasms. What happens next after we're done with the promises? Well, just as the Lord promised, Sarah does indeed become pregnant and gives birth to Isaac. She names him Laughter, as she was supposed to. And she laughs when he is born, and she imagines everyone else will laugh who hears her story. So uh, several years later, the day Isaac is weaned, Abraham throws a big party. And during the party, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. Now, Ishmael is about 16 years old at this point, on the verge of adulthood, and Sarah reacts violently, violently to him laughing and demands that Abraham drive out Hagar and Ishmael so there is no chance Ishmael might inherit anything when Abraham dies. Now, remember that Abraham is about 103 at this point, so he's, you know, nearing death, and Sarah does not want the inheritance split between the two boys. I'm, perhaps Ishmael is growing up to look and act a lot like Abraham. Perhaps she sees how, how much Abraham loves him. Perhaps he is exhibiting the leadership skills Abraham has. Now remember how many layers of the meaning the word laughing has in this story. That one one meaning that hasn't come into play yet is that this word in Hebrew can mean sexual play, dalliance, but that would not make obviously not make sense in this context. I mean, this is a party, the age disparity, you know, that doesn't even make sense. But we already know that laughing not only can mean joking, it can be mocking, it can be sincere. And when it says she saw Ishmael laughing, remember. The word is Isaacing. She saw him Isaacing, and perhaps he was acting as if he were the true heir. Laughter, you see, is Isaac's hallmark, not Ishmael's. Well, Sarah's demand distresses Abraham. He, he loves Ishmael and Hagar, and he goes to the Lord about it. But the Lord tells him to go ahead and do what Sarah wants, and that the Lord will look after Ishmael 
and he too will become a great nation. So early the next morning, Abraham gives Hagar and Ishmael some bread and water and sends them off into the Negev. They wander around and eventually run out of water. And finally, in despair, they lay down to die. And then God opens Hagar's eyes and she sees a well of water nearby. And the water saves their lives. They settle in the Sinai Peninsula, and Ishmael ultimately marries an Egyptian woman, a girl just like Mama. So now we come to one of the most puzzling stories in all of Abraham's saga. It is God's test of Abraham. The Lord tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. I'm going to let you guys wrestle with that whole concept in your breakout sessions. For now, I'm just going to tell you the story. After three days' hike, Abraham, Isaac, and the slaves they took with them finally arrive at the designated mountain for the sacrifice. Abraham leaves the donkey with the slaves, and he and Isaac make their way up the mountain. Abraham carries the fire and a meat cleaver. He makes Isaac carry the wood. So Isaac is probably around eight or ten years old at this point. When they get to the top of the mountain, Abraham builds an altar, lays out the wood, trusses Isaac up, and puts him on the altar. Then, just as he reaches out to pick up the meat cleaver, the angel of the Lord, remember that that, that phrase means it's the Lord in a physical form, the angel of the Lord calls out to him. What I think this is telling us is that Abraham literally heard a voice shouting. And obviously, ignore the angel's wings in this picture. There are no wings mentioned. Abraham says, here I am. And the Lord says, do nothing to Isaac. I now know that you fear God and have not withheld even your most precious son. And at that very moment, Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket nearby. And he offered the ram as an offering to the Lord instead of sacrificing his son Isaac. And the Lord said again out loud, by my own self, I swear that because you have not withhold, withheld your only son, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed and your seed will occupy the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have listened to me. So it's your turn. We need to reconcile this whole child sacrifice thing with what the author is trying to tell us about God. Is God loving or not? Does God want child sacrifice or not? Who is this God? The immediate context of the story doesn't give us the answers. That's where we would look first. And there's no chiasm or other literary device to give us clues. That's where we would look next. So we'll use another tool in our backpack. It's the same one we used when we researched El Shaddai. We'll look elsewhere in scripture to see where child sacrifice is mentioned, what it says about that, 
And based on that analysis, we ought to be able to draw some solid, well-grounded conclusions about what God might have been up to in demanding that Abraham sacrifice Isaac. All right. Everybody's joining back in. Um, so I hope you had enough time to get through all this. I know it's always tight. Um, but let's start, start with that pop quiz, tongue-in-cheek pop quiz. Does the Lord want us to sacrifice our children to other gods? Just no. jump in if you know. <laughs> exactly. Does the Lord want us to sacrifice our children to him? No. No. Is sacrificing your children an offering the Lord considers holy? No. No. Okay. Who do our children belong to, us or the Lord? The Lord. The Lord. Isn't that wonderful? What a relief, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, did the Lord change somehow? Is this a new management? No. And therefore, did the Lord ever in any way possible want Abraham to sacrifice his child? No. no. There is zero support for that. That is like clear. There's, it's not even a question, you know. So that means something else is going on here. Uh, and so um, I think I asked you some other questions. Uh, and I had you go back and look at Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. And in that section, um, it's one of the uh, promise sections. And the Lord reiterates his promise to Abram. And Abram says, yeah, but how, how, do, I, how do I know this is going to happen? And, and the Lord says, you know, go out and look at the sky. You see all those stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have, you personally. And Abram believed, and God counted it unto him as righteousness. That's significant. And so as we have gone through this story, um, we would assume that since Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord saw that he believed, the Lord knew he believed, (laughs) that never again would Abram take things into his own hands. Is that, is that what happened? No. <laughs> Abram repeatedly t- kept taking things into his own hands. So up to the point that we've, you know, got to this whole thing about sacrificing Isaac, has Abram ever stopped taking things into his own hands? No. I mean, the very last story we just read was the whole wife-sister thing again. There is... Abram has like this pattern. He believes, but then he's like going to give the Lord some help here, you know, and, um, and, and then things happen and the Lord rescues him. And we're left with Abram in this like really liminal space. It's in this weird place with the Lord and he's getting old. He's running out of time here, you know? Um, so the Lord's going to do something drastic with him. And, um, and I, and, and I asked you, at what point in the story did the Lord intervene in the sacrifice? Somebody tell me. 
Last minute. Last minute. Just before, or right as, or just before, or right when Abraham grabbed that meat cleaver. Abraham had this thing in his hand, or was fixing to, to actually slaughter his son. And the Lord said, Oop, nope, stop, and provided the ram. So we read about how the, the local Canaanites, all the people in that area, had a worship tradition uh, when they were in dire straits or they needed something important, they would sacrifice a child, their child, by burning them to death as an offering to one of the local gods. How is our God, how did that go? How is our God different? He won't do that. Well, God, God, God stopped it. He yeah, never, God, the, other, the little G gods never stop it. Yeah. And, and God never demanded human sacrifice. That's exactly right. Um, and so, all God, all God, all God wanted was obedience. Yes. And so the question is, um, one of the things people point out about this story is that this story is being recorded as history, not for us, guys. It's being recorded as history for the Israelites, for the people of Israel, for the descendants of these people who are living in this area. And this story, one of the reasons it is most likely in there is to show the difference between our God and the local gods. To demonstrate in a, what we would call an object lesson that our God stops child sacrifice, does not want child sacrifice. It is a visual to remember this. So another thing, and I think that is one of the most important parts of the story, and what I want to hear what your thoughts are in your, from your groups, is what did this whole incident prove to God and or to Abraham? What, what's going on here? Tell me what you talked about. Well, it didn't prove anything to God because God already knew. He didn't need proof. Um, but we said it proved to Abraham that he could have enough faith to not take things in his own hands. He, it also proved to uh, Abraham's descendants and the people who were hearing this story being told generation after generation, it proved to them that they could trust God as well. That's beautiful. So God didn't, but yeah, that was... Woody was talking about how he got teary-eyed just reading it. And, you know, we were talking about how could, could you imagine um, a descendant um, telling his children the story and his son looking at him and his eyes getting bigger and bigger as he's listening to the story of what happened to Isaac and then hearing God intervened. Yeah. <laughs> One of the people in our group brought something up that I found pretty fascinating, which was Abraham was quite the negotiator with God back when it was Sodom and Gomorrah. It was 10 people, 40 people, 20 people. 
So he knew God would negotiate, but in this instance, he did not negotiate. He just took his son and his servants, and he went about his merry way to carry it out. So one of the things we were discussing is this could be Abraham's faith growing, possibly, that he thought something might happen, that God would bring him back from the dead or something. He didn't know. He just was going to follow this miscommunications instruction out. And so he does have these faults of not quite understanding God all the time, but he's trying to fulfill the, the requests that he gets from God. And also along those same lines, why, why did God ask him to do something that was, that was contrary to God's character and detestable? That, that seems like, like if, if someone, if one of us had heard a voice in our heads asking us to do that, it would be like, oh, well, that's obviously the devil. I'm not doing it. And there was no pushback, so it was kind of weird. Why did y'all come up with that? Mm -hmm. We also talked about how um, we, that it's God is declaring his um, his sovereignty over human lives. That God is the only one who can take a human life, and that us, uh, you know, even in, as the sacrifices become um, part of the Hebrew Bible, that it's always animal sacrifice. It's not human sacrifice, but that we are created in God's image, and so we cannot ever offer a sacrifice of a human being to God. I thought that was an interesting perspective. What I would say in response to, to Tony's question is that it seems to me like um, God knew that he was never going to let Abraham carry this out. So he wasn't going to let this detestable thing happen. It was, it was just a test of Abraham. And I keep wondering, why did he test Abraham? It, it had to be for Abraham to mature in his understanding and faith and trust in God. Because <clears throat> what other reason could there be to put such a challenge before someone? Mm -hmm. That kind of reminds me of um, Peter when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. And he does it three times, probably because Peter denied him three times. So he asked him if he loved him three times. But it wasn't to prove to Jesus that Peter loved him. Jesus already knew Peter loved him. After Peter had failed so miserably, when he said, I would never deny you, and he had denied him three times, he had to prove, Peter needed to prove to himself that he loved Jesus enough to follow him through whatever. And I think that's similar here with Abraham, that God needed Abraham to prove to himself that he was finally at the point where he could trust God completely and know that God would provide himself a sacrifice, that he wasn't going to have to actually sacrifice Isaac, or like Julie said, Julia said, if he did, 
he believed God would raise him back up. He believed the promise that God had given him that he was going to bless the world through Isaac and make a great nation out of him. We also mentioned that it kind of is a foreshadowing. That was who used that word? Lou. I think Lou used that word. A foreshadowing or um, a parallel, a picture of what Jesus was going to do in the future. That Isaac um, was given the task to sacrifice his most beloved son, but then he was stopped. But Jesus actually did provide himself as the lamb as the final sacrifice. There's another, a lot. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead I was going to say another thing um, that, that is sort of the teaching Abraham from the teaching Abraham perspective is that Abraham would have been well aware that the other cultures in the area had a common practice of sacrificing their children. So it's possible that that did not seem as unreasonable a request to Abraham as it does to us. Um, and perhaps this was again, you know, not only God teaching Abraham that he could trust God, but also that God did not operate on the same way as the gods of the other people in the area, that there was a different relationship that God had created with Abraham. I think that that is a, a very important point, and I think that actually is the answer to one of the many answers, but in this particular situation, you know, that is the answer to Tony's question, that, that this was not out of the ordinary at all in this area. Um, so Abram, Abraham wouldn't have seen this in the way we see it. Now, certainly, um, if... If uh, anybody um, hears voices, feels an urging from the Lord to do something that is outside of the bounds of what would be good and holy and acceptable and um, bearing good fruit and leading to life and not to death, um, provision is made uh, when in the New Testament to remember to take anything like that you hear to a, a, the body of believers and ask for prayer and wisdom and insight. God does not mind that at all. It, it, it's important that we submit in all humility to each other's prayers you know, and guidance and wisdom that, that doesn't take away our autonomy. It doesn't take away our responsibility to obey God. Um, but it is a step in making sure we are hearing God. And uh, there's no pat answer. It's a process. It's like everything else. It happens in relationship in the Bible. So, uh, and in our, in our very real lives. So uh, I think you all absolutely got where you needed to get in this discussion. Abraham is nearing death. He is undoubtedly reflecting over the events of his life. And in Genesis um, 22, 12, God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God 
because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Genesis 22.12, I think, does not mean the Lord didn't already know this. As you all pointed out, the Lord, the Lord knows this. The Lord here, I think, is telling Abraham that the Lord has seen all his shortcomings. That the Lord has seen all the times Abraham took matters into his own hands. And that Abraham doesn't need to worry about that anymore. Can you imagine the regrets and the turning over and over in his sleep, you know, as he's going to sleep at night? What Abraham is thinking about all the times he's messed up. Is it, is it possible that this is the Lord saying, yes, Abraham, I know how you have failed. But look, today you showed exactly where your heart is. Today, you did not withhold even your sole hope of the promises being fulfilled. Today, you laid all your power down. I see that. I've always seen that. I've always known your heart and counted it unto you as righteousness. But now you've seen it too. You do not need to worry about this anymore. I know you love me, and now you know it too. And so we'll end there today. This class flew by. I can't believe how fast these go. And it is such a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Gail. Bye, everyone. Bye, Gladys. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Have you all seen the um, mummies that they found? It's a small girl child and a, a it's like a 10, 11 year old girl child and a um, boy child that they found um, somewhere in South America. I can't remember right now, but it, they were sacrificed. Um, it's in South America, it's the Aztecs. I always get the ones in Mexico and the ones in South America mixed up. Uh, Incas. Incas. Was Mayans? I think it was the Mayans. Yeah, I think it was the Mayans. Well, that it was the Mayan sacrifice. Yeah. Mm. And um, that they um, have been able that these these were so well preserved that they've been able to um, do like some DNA testing and stuff in the hair. And um, that they could tell that the diets of the two children were different. And it is surmised that the one child was raised as royalty because she was raised to be the sacrifice. And the other one was not actually the sacrifice. He, he was poor and ate less, like she ate a lot of rich meats and stuff like that. And he ate mostly vegetables and fruits and, you know, the, the food of the poor people and stuff like that. And so they surmised that he was her servant in the afterlife, that they put him there to be her servant in the afterlife, and that she was like a queen because she was raised to sacrifice to the gods. And oh my gosh, and I'm looking at these mummies and these pictures, and I mean, they found them years ago, 
I saw them come out when they first found them, but now there's more research been done. And so there's more information about them. And um, so I was reading that and it just, and then this being our Bible study today, it was like, you know, it fit together with that. And I was like, Oh, it just, ugh. It's, yeah, people have done this all over the world. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying to think that, you know, our culture is, and, and most modern cultures are really um, sort of, the perspective is that children are of great value. And to see that at other times in history, that does not seem to have necessarily been the case, or it could be more the idea, maybe like in the ancient Middle East um, or Near East, um, that it was really more that children were also extremely valued. And that's why they were given to the gods, because it was giving the most precious thing you had in order to appease an angry God or seek a special favor that, you know, I'm, I'm giving you everything I have. So please, you know, it, um, it's, it, it does make me wonder what the relationship was to children mm. in, in that time. Well, it wasn't it's, it's, unlike it's that of women. It, they were property. Yeah. Mm. But, and with this particular situation since they showed that they could tell the differences in their diet and even in their lifestyle and how they lived because of who had calluses where or you know that kind of thing they were actually able to tell that this little girl that was the sacrifice was raised like a queen she was treated like royalty and the other kids just happened to be her slave or you know, whatever, whether he was, whether he served her in life, I don't know, but it was his job to serve her in death. It just, ugh. Well, that's kind of the way the Egyptians did things, you know, a lot of times when somebody important died, all their servants and animals and everything were just killed along with them. Yep. Wow. Well, it's the same with yeah. in India with the wives, right? Yeah. Boy, I'm glad we don't live in any of those places. <laughs> well, it's strange because uh, my mom's sister was adopted because her mom was full-blooded Creed Indian, and her dad was um, killed in World War One. Hmm. And so her mom brought her to my grandparents and asked them to adopt her because then she starved herself to death because that was hmm. the way their belief oh. went. And wow. I always, whenever I read anything like some of this stuff or in history, you hear stuff about that. It's like, then there's people that do it to themselves too. You know, it, it, sometimes you think, well, somebody killed them, not that they would kill themselves, but. But because her husband died, she had to sacrifice herself. Yeah. Wow. She wanted to be with him in the afterlife. Wow. And I, that always, you know, been really striking to me because that but wow and that happens more you know even when it's not a religious or a, 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 a legal kind of requirement that people do that all the time kill themselves after the death of a loved one especially if they perceive it as being their fault somehow mm -hmm. you know? yeah 
Yeah. We don't think of it that way in, in today's society, but 